As we begin our time of the study of God's Word, if you would take that Word into your hands as we uh, turn to the book of Titus. And again, we are in the final uh, couple verses in our last week of this incredible study uh, of this great book uh, written by the Apostle Paul to his young disciple Titus and the people on the island of Crete who were serving God and, and uh, worshiping God in, in spirit and in truth. And so we've been so excited about what we've learned. And just as a, as a reminder, as we begin our new series uh, starting next week in the life of Elijah, a man like us, I would encourage you to uh, take some time this week and uh, read through the life of Elijah. You can find uh, the life of Elijah seen in 1 Kings, starting in 1 Kings chapter 17, and it goes all the way through 2 Kings chapter uh, 2. And so there's about uh, uh, six chapters that are dedicated, I believe, uh, to the life of Elijah. And uh, just make sure that you're a part of that and get to know uh, some of the truths and get acquainted with uh, that great story of one of the greatest prophets uh, that God uh, used to do incredible things in a world of great compromise. So look forward to uh, joining uh, in together in that study next week. But we finish up the series of, uh, uh, with, of Titus, setting us straight, and what a great series that it has been. Uh, the Spirit has been setting some things straight in our lives. I hope that uh, you have been challenged. I hope that uh, some of the things that have been a little bit off kilter in your life spiritually are starting to be leveled, are starting to be set straight so that we can be the people of God and the church that God has called us to be. The reason why we need to be set straight is because as a people, as Christians, we many times find ourselves veering off of track. We find ourselves being a little out of balance. And when that happens, wear and tear begins to be found in the Christian life. And what the book of Titus has been, uh, some of you uh, remember the day where uh, on cars you would see these little uh, wings or wires that would hang out by the, by the tires. They called them curb feelers. Remember those things, those curb feelers? Uh, what the book of Titus no doubt is trying to help us with is to be the curb feelers to make sure that we're not veering to the left or veering to the right in regards to our spiritual life, but setting us straight, keeping us level so that we can be the Christians that God wants us to be. But it'll take a lot of work. As I've studied the book of Titus, and I hope that as you have explored this incredible book, that I see a lot of areas that are out of balance. I see a lot of areas that needed to be leveled, and I'm so glad that the main theme of this incredible letter is the idea of grace. That while we get out of balance, while we find ourselves veering to the right or veering to the left, that God is a God of grace. And this grace appeared in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so I hope as you've been setting yourself straight that you haven't beat yourself up so much that you sit there and say, I'll never get this right, I'll never fix this. But as we'll find out in the last verse today, that there's enough grace, there's enough mercy, there's enough love for the journey. And so today we see some closing words in Titus chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. And I want us to look at that and, and explore the closing words of the Apostle Paul to Titus and to us today. So let us stand as we read from Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 12 and going on to the end of the book. As soon as I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way, and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good, in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, we thank you for this journey you have set us on. Lord, we thank you that the journey began in the heart of God before the foundations of the world. And Lord, now we are seeing that being fleshed out as we live our lives for you, Christ. But Lord, I pray that as we close out this book... That we would remember our job isn't done. 
That, Lord, each and every day as we're reminded in this book that while we have been saved, this salvation teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Lord, I pray for the individual today who's struggling with one foot in the world and and another foot in, in your word and in your will. And, Lord, fighting each and every day in that situation of compromise, that they would be set straight that they would recognize the importance of a total allegiance to you, their God. Lord, I pray that uh, through the understanding and truth of this book, that we would be a church that not only teaches but lives in accordance with sound doctrine, that it would involve the older teaching the younger, that it would be us as employees living righteously before our masters, That as citizens, we would be a people who are eager to do what is good and to live peaceable lives. Because that's what you've called us to be and what you've called us to do. And so, Lord, there is much that we can glean from this book. There's much we can glean from these closing words. But, Lord, we just want to stop and say thank you that amidst all of this that you've called us to, That it is a task that we can complete, not because of who we are, but because of the grace that you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ. How amazing that grace is. How thankful as a people of God we are for that grace. Because as the hymn writer says, how we need that grace, how we need you in our lives each and every moment of the day. And so, Lord, I pray that we would not depart from these words without remembering that grace and remembering our calling in response of that grace. So teach us today as we close this great book. We thank you for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It seems that every time Amanda is heading out for a prolonged journey, Uh, where she'll be gone overnight, uh, and there's many duties that will take place between her departure and her arrival back into family and home life, that as she's leaving out the door with the suitcase pulling behind her, she will always come up with a final statement. The final statement usually isn't, I'll miss you, dear, I love you, I will think about you often. Uh, No, the statement that is made is, before I leave... Please remember. And from that statement comes a litany of lists, if you will, of things to do. And it's things that you would think that any grown man, any husband and father would remember and know. Guys, you're going to know where I'm coming from in a moment. Amanda's, one of Amanda's first things is make sure that the children breathe. Tim, they need oxygen. And see to it that they're constantly breathing. Also remember that they're boys. They need food. So feed them preferably at least three times a day. Tim, make sure that they are wearing clothes. Don't forget that. I know you're busy. I know you've got a lot of other things. But make sure that they're not all running around naked. Tim, remember that diapers need to be changed at least daily. And then God forbid if there's medicine to be taken. And then she'll have a list. Noah likes this. Joshua hates that. And make sure that when Luke goes to bed, he has X, Y, and Z. Because if he doesn't, he'll have a rough night sleeping. Before I leave, please Remember, now, I've come to two conclusions on why this takes place. First of all, my wife has recognized that I am completely inept at parenting. And some of you probably would agree with that assessment. But I'm going to give my wife some grace, and I'm going to believe that the reason why she stops and before she leaves, she goes through this ongoing call to remembrance is because she greatly loves, and has an incredible amount of affection for her family. And she wants her ex- the experience of that family that she loves to be as wonderful as possible in her absence. 
She wants it to be the kind of life and experience where there's no harm done to the children and to her husband, that everything is where it needs to be, and that the things that were left unfinished before she left would be brought to completion before she comes home. All of that is not to say how dumb her husband is, but how much she loves her family. As I close out this letter uh, in the book of Titus, I come to the conclusion that what Paul is saying is, is before I leave, before I let you go, Titus, remember some things. And it's not because, Titus, I think you're inept at being a pastor. It's not because I think the people of Crete are a bunch of dummies. But it is because I love you and I desire for the experience of the fledgling congregation on the island of Crete to be that of vitality and of great health. And so what he does is he closes out this great letter with what I would see as three headings in our text. Now many times when we come to a closing of a letter, we begin to think that it's just some superfluous words that really don't mean anything to us, but I hope you walk away today understanding that every word that is written in the word of God is living and active. That even to the very end, until that period is placed at the end of this grand letter, that every word can change our lives. That is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And I think you will see that in Paul's final words this morning. So let's look at these three headings. And the first one that I think is of great importance is that people matter. As Paul closes out this letter, he wants the people of God to understand, especially for Titus to understand, that people matter. Now you say, Tim, that, that's pretty elementary. That's pretty, uh, pretty much what I learned in kindergarten. It's the golden rule that people are important and that they matter. And yet it's something we don't want to miss. It's something that we want to be reminded of. And notice what he says in verses 12 and 13. As soon as I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. One of Paul's trademarks in any of his letters is to spend time giving what I would like to call a shout-out to his peeps. Young people understand that a little more than we as older people do. And we got to understand and know that Paul has a lot of friends. He's an important guy. He's a guy that has a lot of people that know about his ministry and have watched him serve. Paul's the kind of guy that he wouldn't have just had a private Facebook page, but someone would have put together a public Facebook page so that he could have his own personal friends in one and then all the people that follow him. He would have been the kind of guy that would have had a big Twitter account and that as he tweeted, millions of people would have wanted to know what was going on. See, that's a problem with people like me. I could get a Twitter account, but nobody would want to know what I'm doing. They don't care. But with Paul, people wanted to know what was going on. And yet amidst all of that, as important as he was, remember this guy is an apostle. This guy has had visions from God. This guy has seen uh, the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. This man has preached with great authority, has debated the leading thinkers and scholars of his day, and been victorious in proving that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And yet amidst all of this, Paul never becomes a one-man band. He never becomes so independent that he doesn't remember those around him. In fact, in all of Paul's writings... Over six dozen friends are shared. Thank you. God bless you. Pray for them. Pray for these individuals as they travel, as they minister. And six dozen, and I'm sure there's dozens more, that Paul wants to communicate that people are important. And he does it here in Titus as well. 
And he says, I want to name, uh, there's four that are named, there are five that are implied. And I want us to look at them because we see under this heading that people are important and it's first of all seen in Paul's relationships. They're seen in Paul's relationships. Notice that there's no degree of separation for a moment. This isn't really seen through, throughout our text, but, but I want us to recognize it. Understand this. Paul doesn't have an executive assistant who is barking out orders for the king, Hancho or head Hancho apostle Paul. There's no handlers. I, I get bothered many times at pastoral conferences when some of our superstar pastors, you, you can't get within 50 feet of them because there's 15 guys around them, like a secret service, watching out for this guy and moving him from one place to another. In fact, one of my favorite teachers is, is, and preachers is John Piper. And one thing I like about him and one thing I shared with him at a conference that I had attended is John Piper has no handlers. During his conferences, he's just walking around in the hallways just like every average Joe. And he'll stop and he'll get to know people and pray for them. And that is so refreshing in our day of superstars, of people that have to be handled. Paul is just like that. He doesn't have to be handled. He doesn't have to have a group of people around him to keep the riffraff away from him. But he writes a letter and he says, hey, help out my friends. He names them by name. They're important to him. These aren't just a bunch of lackeys that are called to do work. You see, some of us think we're so important today that people just become little minions to do our bidding instead of being the people that God has called to serve as co-laborers in the faith with us. And so we forget how important people are. Now notice in his relationships, he speaks of men by their name. And I want to just highlight them. I don't want to spend a lot of time with them because not a lot of information is given. But let's spend a little time talking about them by name. First of all, he speaks of Artemis. We know little about this man except that he is named after the goddess of wildlife and hunting. And I would say more, but I don't know what to say about him. This is all that is articulated in the scripture. The only thing that we could probably derive out of a a step of speculation is that this man, Artemis, must have been a wonderful man of the faith who lived out the character qualities that is seen in Titus chapter 1 of what it means to be an elder. Because it seems like what Paul is going to do is he's going to have Titus meet him in Nicopolis... And he's going to have Artemis and Tychicus go, and they are going to be the established leaders on the island of Crete. So we have to recognize, while we don't know him, that Paul never would have put an an unqualified or disqualified man in the role of elder over the island of the churches over the island of Crete. And so this man, Artemis, while we know nothing about him, are safe to conclude that this was a wonderful man of the faith who is mature in his walk with Jesus Christ. Second, we come to Tychicus. I know that's a name. It's a great name for a son. Tychicus, Badal. I'm not making any announcements. But we know a little more about this guy. He's spoken about in Acts 20, verse 4, when Paul is doing ministry in Macedonia and Greece. He's one of the faithful co-laborers with a a bevy of them in that passage of what they're doing and how they're serving and where they're going. But where he's spoken about the most, turn in your Bibles for a moment to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 4. And in his final greetings, again, what Paul does is he shouts out to his friends and speaks well of them. Because he loves them and because people matter. And notice what he says in Colossians chapter 4, verse 7. Notice, here's our friend Tychicus. And he will tell you all the news about me. Now notice what Paul says. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know of our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He's coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. 
It seems that Tychicus was a courier, a reporter. He was one who was dispatched to share the good news of what was going on in the life of the Apostle Paul, as well as send letters of instruction uh, for the churches at Colossae and now in Crete. Now notice he says three things about this man, Tychicus, that he is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant. If you underline in your Bible, underline those things and write next to that, say, I want to be that. I want people who are around me to see me as a dear brother. That, the, the phrase there literally means one who is affectionate. I, I have an affectionate feeling about this person. Do the people around you have a great affection for you? Or do they have to grit their teeth to just spend time with you? I've got to spend time with that Badal character again. I mean, come on, do I really have to waste my time doing that? That's not what Tychicus was all about. I'm going to see my man Tychicus. Tie for short. What a great guy, man. He's a wonderful guy. I love him. Can people say that about you? Can people say, I'm looking forward to spending some time with you? Notice he's a beloved brother. He's a faithful and fellow servant of Christ. Can people sit there and say, man, not only is he a great guy, but he serves a great God. And he really loves to do ministry. His life is characterized by the idea that he is a servant of God's. Forget the Apostle Paul. I just want to be like our friend Ty. If I can achieve that as a believer, I am on my way to a fulfilled life in Christ. And it begins by our heartfelt desire to be the kind of person that God wants us to be. Tychicus, what a great guy. But notice he goes on. And he says that, and just very quickly, uh, before I move on to the next guy, it seems that these two guys, Artemis and Tychicus, were given the commission to take reins of leadership on the island of Crete. Not because of what you're thinking. Yes, lawyers can be saved. In fact, there's only one lawyer written about in the scriptures, and it's our Namakos friend, Zenos. Now, we don't know much about Zenos at all. Nothing is really articulated. But we do know that he was a student and a purveyor of the law. We don't know if it was Jewish law, if he was uh, some sort of a friend from the Pharisee days of Paul's, or if he was one who was well-trained in Roman law. We know that he was one who was able to help Paul in his understanding of law, whatever it is, and he was of great help to Paul. Again, a guy we know little about, but then we are told of Apollos. And Apollos, we know much about. This is a very well-known and well-spoken of man. He's talked about, uh, for a moment, just turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 18. Apollos is spoken about in Acts chapter 18. This guy, just like Tychicus, this guy, man, he's got a resume. This guy, is, he's, he's got the right stuff. And notice what it says in Acts 18, verses 24 through 28. We learn some things about him. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria. You know what Alexandria was? Man, that was the cultural place to be. That was the city that was named after Alexander the Great. Talk about a cultural place. Alexandria was a place that had uh, some of the largest deposits of books and literature of the ancient world. And so he is not just a a, a smart man, but he's a man who has incredible wealth of, of educational material before him. And it says that he came to Ephesus. He was a learned man. This guy was smart. He had a thorough knowledge of the scripture. He had been to Awana. Youth on the march, he would come into the class. That's speculation. It'll be in my study Bible. 
But, but he's there. He, he has a thorough knowledge of the scripture. And notice he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And not only had he been instructed, but he was using that instruction because he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. It's one thing to be smart. It's another thing to use that, that education and that smartness, if you will, for a purpose. And thirdly, as a teacher, it's important that you do it accurately. And this guy nails it. He's a smart dude, and he's using it. But notice he has one downfall to him. Though he only knew the baptism of John, he began to speak boldly in the synagogues when Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and wife team, heard them. They invited them into their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Apollos understood Jesus, but he understood Jesus and his understanding of being filled with the Spirit through the waters of the Jordan River and not the spiritual baptism of Almighty God. And so two people, because people are important, Two other Christians, a husband and wife, Priscilla and Aquila, say it's not, it's not good enough that this man only has a certain amount of knowledge, but we're going to give him a greater knowledge to be able to accomplish greater things for the Lord, and we're going to teach him what it means to be filled with the Spirit and to serve and to proclaim because this is a useful man for the Lord who will accomplish great things. And so we know of Apollos. Four men. The fifth one, by implication, is Titus. Paul is writing to him. You can write that down. And we've spent a lot of time looking at the life of Titus. But four men, five by implication. And I want to break them up into two groups and write this down somewhere because this is important. We have two guys that nobody knows. I want to call them the nobodies. The nobodies. And then two guys that we know some bit about. Man, they've got their names and their Uh, resume written down in Holy Scripture. You think that's pretty good? They're the notables. And this is of great importance. Before we move on, is this. Whether you are a nobody or a notable, you're important to God. You say, but Tim, I, I never will ever preach like you do. My face will never be on the church webpage. I'll never write a book. I'll never be on Christian radio. The only thing I will do is I will work in the nursery or work in the kitchen or I'll teach a Sunday school class. And really, what what does that matter? Let me tell you something. Heaven will be filled with people who worked and served behind the scenes. And when Jesus Christ sees you, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And the same heaven that Paul is going to be a part of, you will be a part of. Just be faithful. And don't worry about whether your name gets in the lights or not. Be faithful because God says, I know who are mine. And I will deal with everyone according to what they have done. It doesn't say how many sermons you preached. But out of heartfelt service to God, what you've done in this life. So stop worrying. Do people know who I am? Am I an important guy or not? It doesn't matter. The only person that it should matter to is, are we important to God? And he says he loves us. He says he cares for us. He says he knows the amount of hairs that are on our head. Some are a little more difficult than others to count. And then he wants to use us. It's seen in Paul's relationships. Very quickly, notice it's seen in a personal request. He says in verse 12, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. When Tychicus and Artemis show up, Titus was to get on the move and head to Nicopolis. Nicopolis was a a Greek city. It was uh, situated on the Adriatic Sea in northwestern Greece. And it was named Nicopolis... This will help you out. If you don't know how to translate the word Nicopolis, all you have to remember is it's Nike town. Nike, the word for victory in Greek. This is Victory City. And the reason why it was called Victory City was because Caesar Augustus, if you remember in Luke chapter 2, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken. That same Caesar Augustus 
was the one who built Nike Town, who built Victory City because he had found victory over a very famous duo, not Aquila and Priscilla, but Mark Antony and Cleopatra. And because of that great military victory, he says, let's build a town. And Paul says, I'm going to winter there. He's not there yet, but I'm going there. And he says, I want you to come. And he says, do your best to come quickly. The idea there in, in the Greek literally gives the idea at, at, in any way possible, get here as quickly as possible. Focus your attention on getting here as fast as you can. And the reason why, and there's speculation, but I, I'm going to go under the heading that people matter, was because Paul needed people around him. And so Paul says, I'm going to winter there. And I want someone to spend some time with me. I don't want to be by myself. He says in uh, 2 Timothy chapter uh, 4, he says, Timothy, come to me as quickly as possible. Demas has deserted me. Only Mark is with me. And when you come, bring my parchments, bring my cloak. In essence, what he's saying is, is you know, I'm cold. Give me something to wear. Bring me something to read. We, begin, we many times insulate Paul into being this superhuman guy. And friends, he's just like you and me. He needed people around him who loved him and who cared for him. And he says, do your best. Because people matter not only to God, but people matter to me. Understand this, in our relationships with one another, people matter to God. And that means as believers, they need to matter to you and I. Notice the second thing that he shares. After articulating these things, he gives us then a pattern for healthy ministry. In verse 14, back in the book of Titus, he says, Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. After declaring the importance of teamwork and the importance of people, Paul moves on and he says that the people are to learn. The Greek word there is manthoneo. It's a Greek word, manotheo. And it means an intentional learning by inquiry, and observation. It means that we accept through this learning a desire to apply as a continual way of life the truth of Scripture. And so what Paul says is, hey, what you need to do is you need to teach. Now notice what Paul says in regards to this is that it involves teaching people, first of all, to love what is good, Titus 1 uh, nine. I'm sorry, one eight. Rather, an elder must be hospitable, one who loves what is good. And we need to teach that. What is good? What are we to love? Next, it is not just to love what is good, but it is to teach what is good. Titus 2.1, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. How can we know what to love if we don't know what good things there are unless God's word teaches us? And in Titus chapter 3, we are called to do what is good. At the end of chapter 2, we are to be a people who are eager to do what is good. It involves learning. And so the first thing that we see is what Paul wants Titus to remember is that it involves in the church an ongoing education. We need to continually be learning. We need to continually be understanding what the scriptures say about us. Remember this. When we call ourselves a disciple of Jesus Christ, we are calling ourselves learners, students of Christ. And this is where we as a church here in America fall so short. And that's why it's important to have ministries like what Steve and Brenda are doing up in Minnesota to train and to teach because we need to be learning. But it needs to be happening in the churches as well. We can't just say, well, when someone has an interest to biblical things, we'll send them off to a university, get them the schooling that they need, and then bring them back. But as a church, we need to be teaching and training, and that's why we spend so much time on Sunday morning in the Word. And that's why we go then to ABFs and spend more time in the Word. And that's why as children with Awana, we spend time having them meditate and memorizing God's Word. Why? So that they can be educated, so that they can be learners. But notice within this, it isn't a suggestion. It's a command. It's found in the present imperative, this idea to learn, which means that the instruction is mandatory and must be a part of the church's lifestyle. 
Paul is commanding the people of Crete and us today to continually keep learning how to live the Christian faith both in word and action. But right before you think that it's just a gathering of information, he says it involves an all-consuming devotion. He says that our people must learn to, and notice the next word, devote. There's a passion there. This isn't just learning and becoming these uh, big uh, people filled with all this information. But it involves a devotion. A devotion to do something. And so we learn what it means to do what is good. And then we take that and we say, it's not good enough for it just to stay here. But it has to now translate in itself into my heart. It's got to become a passion of mine. As a father of young children, young boys, right now we are in the head time. Do this, do that. Don't do this, don't do that. And it's all up here, make good decisions. But about the time they start reaching 10 or 11 or 12 years of age, it needs to be starting to saturate into the heart. The reason why I do these things isn't because mom and dad said so or because I'll get a spank or a time out if I don't. But I do these things not because I just know them to be right, but because my heart says this is right. And that's what needs to happen within the church. We can't just keep teaching people, do this and do that, because the life of Christ will become a duty unless it translates itself that they start devoting themselves. I am doing you no good as your pastor, as your teaching pastor, to be the one who just gives you information and you walk out and you try to fix it, but halfway through the parking lot, it's already out your ears. See, that's the problem with the head. It's got a lot of holes in it. It's got to get to the heart. If it gets to the heart, then man, it goes through the arteries and the whole body can do it. Because at some point, we're going to get to this in a moment, but hopefully it goes from the heart, uh, head to the heart, to the hands and to the feet. You see, some of you aren't serving because you're so busy just filling this noggin up with information that it's never getting to what is going to do good. And so you don't even know what it means to love good. All you know is you're a computer that has information. Well, this is what I'm supposed to do. And nothing more. So Paul says it involves ongoing education. It involves an all-consuming devotion. And then it involves daily participation. He says, devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Yesterday, uh, Noah was watching with his cousin uh, Star Wars. And uh, I came down just for a couple minutes to, to watch, and, and we're at the scene where there's this huge monster alien, whatever you call him, in, uh, in Star Wars. It's my friend, Jabba the Hutt. And Jabba the Hutt's this big, fat, slimy creature with a massive tongue, and he just sits there, and he eats, and he talks, and he doesn't do anything beyond that. Let me tell you something. When you are just taking in information, and even if it gets down to your heart, if you're not doing something about it, if you haven't seen Job of the Hunt, go rent that because that's what you are as a Christian. Just sitting there, feed me. Feed me more. Do this for me. Do that for me. And I'll tell you, Job of the Hunt isn't very attractive. And we're not attractive when it's all in the head. And it begins to saturate our heart, but it doesn't get to our feet. And so what Paul says is, don't just learn this stuff. Don't just say it's a passion, because I can assure you, if we were to pull us as a congregation, we would say, I know what to do, and I know why I need to do it, because I love Jesus and I want to do it, but our feet never move. Our hands never move. And so what Paul says is, ha you want to know where to apply this thing? Let me introduce you to Zenos and Apollos. You want to know how you can help? They need food. They need water. They're going to need money. You give them, notice what the text says, everything that they need. Because I know what Paul's thinking. It's what every pastor is thinking. The congregation will say, well, I'd love to help, but I don't see anybody who's in need. Well, here they are, Zenos and Apollos. Get to work. Start ministering to them. It doesn't have to be in the extravagant things, my friends. Notice what he says. To provide in the daily necessities. 
So what it may mean is, is dropping off a bag of groceries to someone that you know that might be in need. It may be not even knowing whether they're in need or not, but sending a card and saying, you know what, I'm praying for you. I don't know you all that well, but, but I just want to call and encourage you. I just want to just be a, just a minister to you. I want to serve you because I've learned what it means to follow Christ. It's in my heart, and now I'm going to put that to action because a person that has been changed in their mind and in their heart by the gospel and grace of Jesus Christ will be eager to do what is good. And so I just want to be eager. So people will say all the time, I'm ready to serve, I'm ready to go, but I don't know what to do. We need to be like firemen. Have you ever gone to a fire barn? They, they have their rooms, their bunks, and then they have this big pole because they don't have enough time to run downstairs. They need to have the quickest place to get to their uniform and to their trucks. And they get to their uniform and their, and I, I love it, their, their uh, shoes or boots are all ready to go. They just jump right into them and they throw the jacket on and the hat's right there and they're on the truck. Why? Because they are eager to get to the fire. And as believers, we need to be eager, ready at a moment's notice to serve. But sadly, as Christians, the reason why we don't serve is we're so focused in on our needs, our desires, Some of you will leave this place so quickly today, you'll never turn around to ask anybody if they're hurting because you've got somewhere to be, somewhere to go. And you've never asked the question, is there someone who is like the Apostle Paul that is asking Titus, come to me quickly? Is there someone, maybe it's a neighbor Maybe it's a young lady in our church. Maybe it's someone at your workplace that is just asking the question, come to me quickly. Are you ready? And you pray, Lord, give me opportunities, give me opportunities, and they're all before you. They are all before us. I might hearken to say that maybe we should do less praying for opportunities and and go after the ones that God has before us. I know that sounds blasphemous in some ways. But we're so pretty, Lord, give me opportunities, give me opportunities. And there's people that are on their way to hell. Their lives are falling apart and we're praying instead of serving. Eager to do what is good. It doesn't mean we don't pray, i got to highlight that. But it doesn't mean we don't do that. But we make sure that we're out doing those things. It involves daily participation. And he says, here's the example. Paul, Paul says, Zenos and Apollos, there you go. Daily necessities. This is what fellowship is all about. People coming together as a people of God and shaking one another's hands and saying, how you doing? I'm fine. How about you? Doing fine. Thank you very much. Have a great day. I'm going to move on. Oh, by the way, I like sledding. That's my favorite winter activity. Move on. It's no, it's stopping and saying, how can I pray for you? What can I do for you? I am eager to do what is good. Have you ever met a person that just loves doing good? There's not enough things in the world. I just want to be there. I want to be of service. That's what God is calling his people to, eager to do what is good. Now notice it creates a godly solution. What does this enable us to do? Not to live unproductive lives. Paul says God doesn't want us to live unproductive lives. In fact, in John chapter uh, 17, uh, let's see here, 15 and 16 and 17, he talks over and over again about bearing fruit, and that the people of God will bear fruit. And he says, I want you to bear fruit. And so it's ongoing education of the church. It is the devotion that is built in the hearts of the people. We don't just give information, but we want people who are passionate and that it's changed their lives so that in in turn will change the lives of those who listen, who will then lead themselves to daily participation, which then as a result of that, A plus B plus C equals, you will not live an unproductive life. Can I tell you that the un in productivity, unproductivity, the unproductive Christian, the unproductive Christian is the greatest threat to Village Bible Church. And we as elders are scared to death of this because we recognize, as the, as the hymn writer says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. You leave God, you're unproductive for him. And that's why a year ago as a church, we, we made a decision that we needed to commit ourselves 
to a certain set of ideals within our membership commitment. And it wasn't just, you know, hey, I'll say hi to you when, the, when we have a cup of coffee in our hands and, a, and I'll, I'll, I'll be nice to you when you're nice to me. You know, it went far beyond that. It went beyond saying, I want to be eager to do what is good, and so I need the church to educate me on what the life of Christ is all about and to spell that out for me because I'm easily forgetting those things. And I want to be reminded of those things. And then it involves my heart. It's a commitment. I I want to do these things. I don't want to do them so that I can put a pin on my my chest that says I'm a good Christian. I want to do these things because I want to live a productive life. And so what it means is I'm going to daily participate in these things. That's what this is all about. Because if we don't, we will find ourselves falling prey to, uh, doing it again, unproductive lives. He gives a solution. Bear fruit. You do it in a community. You do it with the teachers and the leaders of the church leading the way. One final thing, and I need to close out. I've got a couple minutes left here. And that is Paul finishes up with two principles that should motivate. Paul closes with these last words. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. There are two things that should motivate us to not live unproductive lives. Number one, close fellowship with others. Close fellowship with others. The reason why we pursue fellowship isn't so that we can have a whole bunch of Facebook friends from church, but it's so that we as a people serving and committed to God together may show the love that each of us needs because without that love, and affection, and without that ongoing greeting, we will never accomplish what God has for us. And so that's why the writer of Hebrews says, do not forsake the assembly of together as some are in the habit of doing, because if you're not together, you can't fellowship. And I'll tell you, and it was shared at the annual meeting, when only 61% of the Village Bible Church body is at church on a, on a, a weekly basis, fellowship will never be what God has called it to be as a church. You can say, well, Tim, you're a preacher. That's what you're called to do, tell people to show up. And let me tell you something. If you want the mediocre, status quo Christian life that does not produce fruit, then do whatever you want on Sundays. But if you want to be encouraged and exhorted and called to another week of godliness, another week of being eager to do what is good, then you need to surround yourself with people who have had the kind of week that you have had, who have fallen to sin like you and I have, and who come in and we're broken and we need God's grace. And the people of God come around us and they love us and say, I've been there, but aren't you glad that he who began a good work in you is faithful to see it to completion? So give Get out there and get to work because that's what you and I have been called to do. And so we got a fellowship together. And so he says, he says, hey, everyone with me sends greetings. This isn't just a letter to Paul or from Paul to Titus. It's, it's to everyone. We send greetings to you and make sure you greet those in the faith. The reason why we spend time with one another greeting isn't just to, to take another five minutes to say hello, but it is so that we can show. Notice what it says that we can greet those who love us in the faith. What a great connection. And finally, he closes and he speaks of Christ's favor for all facets of life. Oh, would we just bathe in this this morning? Grace be with you all. God's unmerited favor. I don't want you to close your Bibles or do anything just for a moment. Give me a minute and a half and you'll be done. If we would recognize the place that God's grace has in our lives, the difference it would make. You see, some of you are trying to be a good Christian. You're trying to do all the right things. And you have forgotten that you didn't get yourself saved in the first place. So what makes you think you're going to sanctify yourself if it isn't for God's grace? Oh, how we need that amazing grace. The choir sang about it before I came up here. How amazing that grace is. That grace enables elders in chapter 1 to be the kind of elders that they need to be. To be men of faith and men of the word. 
It's grace that keeps us from falling off the deep end when false teachers come in our midst, when that knock comes at the door and we see counterfeiters coming a mile away. It is by grace, not your brains that does that, but by God's grace that he allows you to persevere and endure. It is by grace in chapter 2 that we as older men are men who are found to be sound in faith, in love, and in righteousness. It is by grace that we as older women are able to love and to be women worthy of respect, to be able to teach the younger what it means to love their husbands and to love their children. And I could go on forever talking about the grace that's needed for that, young ladies. It's by grace that we recognize and know that Jesus Christ came. It is by grace that we say no to ungodliness and worldly lusts. You're struggling with sin today? Don't just try to say tomorrow is the day I'm not going to do it. But you bathe yourself in the idea of grace and say, I'm so glad that when I sin, I've got an advocate who loves me and who intercedes on my behalf so that I can be found to be righteous. It is by grace that we are given the opportunity to live peaceable and considerate lives among the nations. It is by grace that we are able to go from being dirty, rotten, filthy scoundrels in chapter 3 to being those who have been saved by that grace. It is by that grace that we are able to warn divisive people. And I could go on and on. Were it not for God's grace, we would be sunk. And so Paul says... Grace be to you all. There's not a person here, young or old, who can't get, who doesn't need a new infusion of God's grace in their life. And Paul says, I could tell you a whole bunch more, but time limits me as it does for me today. And so let me just close out with the greatest closing of all. Grace be with you. And so what you do is you apply that to where you where the fighting is the most severe and where you need it the most. Grace be to you Village Bible Church. And don't just hold that grace for yourself, but extend that grace to the brothers and sisters around you. So that as Titus has told us that we're changed by that grace, that we then will be a people of grace, eager to do what is good. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Lord, I'm so thankful for this letter of Titus. And Lord, I pray for our people. Lord, I pray on behalf of us as a people that we would saturate ourselves in the grace of Almighty God. You have saved us, not because of the righteous things that we have done, but according to your mercy. And so, Lord, as a result of that, I pray that we would be a people who receive that grace. Lord, if there's someone here this morning who has never received that grace, that today they would receive it. And today they would understand and know that by receiving that grace, that they are your children. Lord, if there's anyone here who who needs more information, Lord, that they would stop me. They would go to our welcome center. Lord, they would just go to the person in the pew next to them and say, tell me about this grace. I need this grace. Lord, whether it's here in the church or it's someone in our workplace or our school or our neighborhood, that Father, we as recipients of this grace would respond, as the book of Titus says, to be eager to do what is good. So Lord, we've heard from your word. It has saturated our heads. It has impacted our hearts. Now, Lord, by your grace, let it impact the way we live, the way we Respond to those in the world around us so that they may see the grace and receive the grace that we ourselves have received. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the grace you've given and all that it affords us as believers. So now we go and live for you. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.